Uh, good afternoon and welcome to our second session, which is on competing visions, what structure for higher education. Um, I'm going to begin by introducing uh, Stefan Collini. Um, he is going to talk about intellectually autonomous and democratically accountable question mark. Uh, I think he needs no introduction. He will be known to uh, many of you in this room. Um, I first uh, came across him when he wrote an absolutely brilliant piece in the London Review of Books uh, on basically the period around the Brown Report, and we have met subsequently. Um, I know that um, he is going to, like all the other speakers this afternoon, to stick rigorously to their 20 minutes, uh, because if, if, if you don't, uh, we won't have enough time for discussion. So over to you, Stefan. Thank you, Tessa. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm very pleased to have been invited to take part in this event, and also, I must say, very pleased, given this morning's discussion, to uh, just have the chance to illustrate that it's not only those who are normally described as pragmatists who might be found wearing a suit on these occasions. Uh, the central issue that I want to address is the tension, the necessary tension, I think, between the kinds of intellectual autonomy universities have to have if they're to fulfill their purposes at all adequately and the kinds of accountability to the wider society that they must also have if they're to retain legitimacy and wider support, including financial support. And this, of course, is not a new tension. In some sense, this tension has been a feature of the relation of universities and their host societies since the beginning. And it's not very surprising, I think, therefore, if from time to time one or other party feels that the balance has been tipped too far in one direction or the other. So let me be emphatic at the outset and say that I don't think there is one right answer to this issue, certainly not in purely procedural or institutional terms. Throughout the long history of universities, there's been a kind of conflict between the practical ends which society thinks it is furthering by founding and supporting universities and the ineluctable pull towards open-ended inquiry which come to shape these institutions over time. I think we could even imagine that societies enter into a kind of Faustian pact when they set up universities. They ask them to serve certain practical purposes, but if they're to be given the intellectual freedom necessary to serve those purposes successfully, they're always, of course, at risk of, in some sense, exceeding or subverting those purposes. And I think that's very clear when the uh, logic of unfettered inquiry and the exercise of qualitative judgment, both of which are, I hope we could agree, essential to the work of universities, is found to be on a kind of collision course with the tendency of all modern societies to, requ to require quantitatively measurable forms of accountability and utilitarian outcomes. I think to put this tension in its most deliberately provocative way, we could say that what's most distinctive and perhaps most distinctively valuable about what universities do is precisely what it's hardest to capture by the metrics societies increasingly use to measure value. And I think that's not an easy truth for democratic accountability to come to terms with. 
Now, for me, one of the most striking things about the Robbins report, viewed from our present perspective, is its lack of defensiveness. And by this, I don't mean, of course, that it's not careful in its reasoning or alive to the difficulties that its proposals might face. It is both of those things. What I mean is it's written throughout from an assumption that universities should not begin by apologizing for themselves, that they have a value and a role in society that can be argued for and that society can, by and large, recognize. Now, clearly, the tone and the address of that report owed something to the then not-so-challenged dominance of the values historically associated with certain kinds of governing elites and even something, perhaps, to the persistence of wider patterns of cultural deference. But I think in its general as well as its specific statements, the report was not apologetic or embarrassed about assuming that, as it put it, in developing man's capacity to understand, to contemplate and to create, universities serve, its phrase, the needs of society. In other words, it wasn't afraid to say so, say that they did so because not in spite of the fact that these are its ultimate ends, nor was the Robbins report apologetic, quite the opposite, about emphasizing that preparation for future employment was, of course, a proper and natural concern for universities and their students. These were taken to be complementary and not antagonistic goals. Now, this lack of defensiveness comes out, I think, particularly strikingly in the section of the report that gets a little neglected by comparison to all the talk about numbers and funding. Uh, This is, uh, as the report itself says, what we regard as the most important and most difficult of all the problems we have had to consider, what machinery of government is appropriate for a national system of higher education in this country. This was the section which, in fact, was referred to this morning by, by the late Lord Moser. Um, Now, I think here the report emphasised essentially two things. First, the vital importance of the so-called arm's length principle that's already been mentioned. That's to say that universities should not, as in some European systems, for example, be directly controlled from government, but that funding should be distributed via an independent institution made up at this point largely of senior university figures to act as a buffer, as the University Grants Committee was seen to do at the time. And secondly, that responsibility for this domain should be assigned to an appropriate government ministry. And here the report recommended, as we've heard, not the continuation of the existing, rather incongruous, relation to the Treasury, and not, in fact, the inclusion of universities under an enlarged Ministry of Education. At least the majority report did not. And, of course, they hadn't yet thought of the witticism of assigning it to the Department of Business. What the report recommended was the formation of a new ministry, a Ministry of Arts and Sciences, that would include what it called other autonomous state-supported activities that are at present administered on principles resembling those of the Grants Committee, such as museums and galleries, the Arts Council, the Research Councils, and so on. And I just want to read you two sentences from this, uh, I still think, uh, rereading it this past week, conspicuously well-written report, uh, which sets out what they think should be said in favour of this arrangement. This is the Robbins report. Since much of the work would be done through grants committees, 
the whole would tend to be informed by the special degree of detachment and respect for the autonomy of the institutions and individuals concerned that is so necessary if the connection of the state with creative activities is to be a quickening rather than a deadening influence. This would recognise the importance to the spiritual health of the community of a proper organisation of state support for learning and the arts. Well, as we know, this was one of the recommendations that was not acted upon, and it appears from Susan Halson's biography of Robbins that this was one of the uh, failures that he himself particularly regretted. Now, in picking this out, I'm not uh, seeking to vindicate his particular proposal at this point or in any impossibilist sense return to the time from which it dates. But I do think it raises a quite important and still continuing question about the right way to ensure some form of democratic accountability for these rather awkward beasts that universities are. As we've again heard in earlier remarks, some of the developments of the past half century have been moves away from Robbins in this respect. I'm not going to dwell on the question of the appropriate ministry, but as we know, there's been a certain element over those years of pass the parcel with the higher education portfolio, And now, both previous and this government have it firmly lodged in the Department of Business, which is a long way from what Robbins recommended. Obviously, there can be pros and cons to any division of ministerial responsibilities, but I have to say I think a ministry now that brought together culture, science, and the arts might seem to have a better chance in some ways of representing some of the distinctive features of universities. The move away from the arm's length principle, of course, is no less significant, Hefke's main role is, in essence, to give effect to government policy, not principally to act as the kind of buffer that the UGC did. And as we often hear, when measures are introduced because of, for example, direct lobbying by business of Gordon Brown for the introduction of some kind of impact assessment, again, I think we feel that it's moved some way from what Robbins was thinking of in terms of the respect for the detachment and autonomy of these institutions. But the truth is, surely, that there's been a much wider change in the character of public discussion about these and other matters, especially in terms of the values and criteria that are appealed to. A central fact of our situation now is that I think, in what we might broadly call the policy-making classes, there is a widespread belief in two related but actually separate convictions. And first, that is that the main and perhaps only consideration that has indisputable electoral legitimacy is that of contributing to economic growth. And second, that the most effective means to do this is going to involve some attempt to simulate the conditions of an economic market. Now, I think with those two assumptions in place, that's one of the ways in which that tension, which I mentioned at the beginning, uh, between intellectual autonomy and a particular form of democratic accountability is harder to maintain. And I think the common element to some of the recent attempts to make universities more accountable, as it's usually described, is actually at risk of making their contribution less, not more. And I think the core of the problem lies in trying to move too quickly from the activities that universities carry on to the measurable benefits that society can be seen to derive from them. I think this kind of too quick slide is present 
when, for example, there are discussions about how far the research of university departments, especially science and technology departments, should be aligned with the needs of local industry, whereas I think I've noticed that the best spokesmen for local industry recognise that in many ways it's better for universities to get on with doing the fundamental research that they're good at and not to try to second-guess what might be of immediate but actually perhaps rather transient importance in one particular domain of business. I think the same is true of the question of preparing uh, students for future employment. This is obviously a huge question. There's no one thing to say about it. But I think what we have seen uh, in recent decades is a move away from the idea that a broad, a culturally enriching and a mentally rigorous kind of preparation may actually be what many of the best employers want from university graduates because it will enable them to adapt to very fast-changing circumstances in their world and replacement of it with an attempt to tailor that preparation much more immediately for what is currently thought to be the most uh, applicable of these sorts of skills. And I have to say I think something similar, that quick move, is present in the justification for the impact requirement in the REF That is to say that something uh, which is in some ways an indirect byproduct of good research starts to become too important in determining activities within universities and then rewarding them afterwards. The result, in other words, I'm suggesting of a lot of these moves is that if you go too quickly from the one to the other, you may end up reducing the benefit that society gets from university activities rather than, in fact, increasing it. I think another aspect of this same problem is that contemporary public debate about universities, though, of course, not universities alone, uh, is very much subject to the pressure to substitute measurements of quantity for judgments of quality. And this, again, is something we're very familiar with. I have nothing that uh, you haven't thought of that I can tell you about this. Except, I think, to say that those of us in universities should not accept that judgment is merely a matter of arbitrary or personal opinion. And therefore, I think we should not give up the idea that judgments rest on reasons, and some reasons are and can be argued to be better than others. The truth is we all, in fact, conduct our lives on that assumption, but we sometimes, I think, seem to lose confidence in it in public debate when it's assumed that only those things which are quantitatively measurable could be shown to be, in some sense, objective. And again, I think a restrained but justified confidence and corresponding lack of defensiveness of the kind I mentioned in the Robbins report are at the heart of the matter. I would be very interested in discussion to hear from those here who include, I notice, quite a few uh, senior university administrators and people from the world of politics and public affairs, what their view is of what looks like, from another angle, the kind of never-ending loop of anxiety-driven attempts at justification. What I mean by that is I think we're familiar with the ways in which academics quite often feel now uh, pressed to characterize their activities in terms which, although they feel somewhat alien, they hope will appeal to those who are running their institution, or that those running the institution may feel that they've also got to use certain kind of language because they hope it will appeal to those who run and fund the national bodies and the national system, or indeed, possibly, that politicians themselves often feel they have to use a certain language that they feel is the only one which will work with an electorate rather than risking other sorts of justifications. 
In all of these cases, it seems to me, what uh, gets squeezed out of public debate is that expectation which various groups in society have still, I think, not given up on, which is that universities should be home to something other than contribution to economic growth, and that there are long-term views here other than mere preparation for employment, that they want to see universities keep alive alongside, of course, the other functions that they perform, but that these other values actually come to occupy either a very small or indeed an almost non-existent place in public debate. Now, the Robbins Report, uh, as we've heard earlier, it's of its time, and its time is in all kinds of ways not our time. But I singled out that mixture of confidence and public spiritedness because I think something like that blend is likely to result in a more considered view of this tension between the accountability that democratic societies ought rightly to exercise and demand and the intellectual autonomy which universities need to have in the first place. Robbins, as you saw from that quotation, was not afraid to speak of the importance to the spiritual health of the community of the proper organisation of these things. And I think, therefore, it's not enough just to say, well, but in some ways government continues to do this on behalf of the community, as in, for example, the support of research. Obviously, much depends on the conditions and the kinds of strings attached to that. And all the while that those who distribute that research feel that they must, for example, direct it at themes or topics which they believe will contribute to contemporary economic policy, I think all that while we are not getting that kind of what Robbins called quickening rather than deadening effect of the state's connection with learning and the arts. Well, the decades since Robbins have seen a massive educational enfranchisement take place in this country, notably of women and to some extent those of both genders from less privileged backgrounds, as again we were hearing this morning from I'm tempted to say the late Sir David Watson, if we're going to use that. <laughs> it seems that if you've got a title to begin with, maybe if you add late to it, it's a kind of intensifier, and it's even more on it. Um, I have to say, this great enfranchisement seems to me to be a huge democratic gain, which I think we should support and seek to continue to extend. I do not share the view of those who want to say in whatever way it has gone too far, I certainly do not share the view of those who think more means worse. More means more, and for many of those who benefit from it, more than means better. But I do think we may be at risk of denying the true benefits of higher education to those newly recruited students, including large numbers of mature and part-time students, if we try to concentrate the activities of universities too narrowly on what might be perceived to contribute to economic growth. Yes, those new cohorts of students want their education to be, among other things, a preparation for employment. But isn't there a risk that policy makers and others may involve themselves in a kind of condescension when they say that, in effect, they and we of earlier generations benefited greatly from the culturally rich and intellectually extending educations we were lucky enough to have, but outside a few elite institutions, nobody's going to have that now. I think we exercise true democratic accountability not by trying to subordinate the work of universities to any of these currently favoured trends, 
but to concentrate on supporting their principal task of deepening and extending human understanding because I think it is from their successful pursuit of that task that, in the end, they make the largest contribution to the society that supports them. Thank you. Our next speaker is George Winkler, who is an expert, one of the most expert people I've ever come across on European higher education, and he's going to talk about a European vision. Over to you, George. Is it something else? Slight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to this conference. Uh, I appreciate very much that you would also like to uh, come across, let me say, continental European, if I may say so. Uh, I think you invited me not so much as professor of economics or as a vector for 12 years of the University of Vienna but you want to hear something about, let me say, a European vision. But before I start, just let me say that as an economics professor or as rector of the University of Vienna, I could tell you quite many stories about Lionel Robbins. Perhaps the most interesting one is when he came to Vienna in the early 30s um, to see Mises, who was professor at the University of Vienna, uh, in order to get Hayek hired to the London School of Economics. And the main reason was because he wanted to have someone who could intellectually fight against John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> <laughs> so that might be interesting stories. So I still have some documents on, on that visit of Lionel Robbins to Vienna. Now, the, the reason why I... I can talk about Europe. Let me just say that, uh, as you can see here, I'm the former president of the European University Association. Well, in fact, I was vice president of EUA from 2001 to 2005 and president of EUA from 2005 to 2009. So I participated in the Bologna conferences for eight years. And... Uh, uh, to a certain extent, being, let me see, the voice of European universities, um, I was somehow in charge of driving the agenda of the Bologna process. But besides that, from 2004 to 2012, I was a member of the European Research Advisory Board, respectively of the European Research Area Board, which is the main uh, body of the Commission to get advice on how to shape research policies. So the changes from Framework Program 7 to uh, Now Horizon 2020 was very much suggested by uh, that uh, European Research Area Board. In fact, for many years I was also a member of the Bureau uh, which is, to a certain extent, let me see, the inner core of the advisory board. Before I say perhaps 
Um, just to give you an idea of what my main thesis is, is uh, when you travel around Europe, and being as a president of the European University Association, I think I visited 200 universities in Europe, from Lisbon to Helsinki, from Glasgow to Erzurum in Turkey, which feels as a European university. And uh, so traveling here and there made me aware that there are strong national traditions, strong, if I may say so, national goals, objectives, for example, with respect to access to higher education institutions when it comes to tuition fees and many other issues. And one of the reasons why the national uh, traditions are so much capped has to do with the fact that um, the universities are still mostly funded by public money which comes out of national sources. So, of course, parliaments have a big interest, national parliaments have a big interest to somehow control their uh, higher education system. But at the same time, as I will talk, there are huge pressures here and there to come up, and since Baroness Blackstone is here, I may already quote the Sorbonne Declaration of 98. She has signed it. Uh, already the Sorbonne Declaration speaks of a Europe of knowledge. And so the importance is, is how to create that Europe of knowledge and how somehow to get a structure for European higher education. Now, what is interesting is, is that in the debate during the last years is that um, old, let me say, universities idea, university ideas have re-emerged. Um, I just have here the medieval universities, university with four faculties. You remember the lower faculty and then the three upper faculties. Uh, the quotes here are from the Charter of the University of Vienna of 1365. And it's interesting to see that on the one hand, they wanted to have rational, reasonable people. But on the other hand, they were very much engaged in having priests, uh, lawyers, and doctors. That's the medieval university. Um, as I also write down, and I've learned that from you, that it was not so much the British university model, but the Scottish university model. You remember our discussion, uh, uh, I think it was two years ago, um, that that was taking over to the U.S. And right now, actually, you see this medieval structure quite well in the U.S. system with the colleges and the professional schools. And what is quite interesting is, is that when you look to the Sorbonne Declaration, sorry for alluding to that declaration again, they start with saying how proud we are that we have such a long university tradition. And to a certain extent, there is the conclusion in that document that you can regain strength by somehow taking up medieval, let me say, uh, medieval structures, university structures. So to a certain extent, there's a link. We have to become more competitive. Let's look how important we were in the past. 
And what is also interesting is that, of course, the university values, which were in this medieval university, which are now discussed very much uh, in the um, in the Magna Carta Universitatum of Bologna uh, is something which is actually shared among all the universities. So there is a common core which is important. But what is important to see is when you would like to understand the European development is that in the 18th, 19th century we got a diversity which is still persistent. Now one is, I said, French model, state utilitarianism. And actually, if I may allude to my previous speaker, uh, there you have accountability, but accountability to the state. And uh, it's not interesting in that Talleyrand Commission of 1791, um, which was a report by the Assemblée Nationale of France in 71, which pleaded very much for primary education, secondary education, and so on. They have this statement somehow that in order to get progress, you have to get rid of the universities. And one of the reasons was is they wanted to go into that direction of Ecole Spéciale, which are now the Grand Ecole. The Ecole Polytechnique was already founded before Napoleon. That's important to note. And it has been still a part of the defense ministry, not a higher education ministry. And that came out of that, that you needed technocratic cadres, state cadres, in order to defend the new, let me say, French state, and also, let me say, to fight successfully the war against uh, the Allied forces, which were, uh, which was, of course, uh, England, Prussia, and Austria, and other countries. Now, it is interesting to see that as a, as a counterforce of that, was the German Humboldt model, and that is what you could call intellectually autonomous. Actually, they went so far to say that the university is the meta-subject of the unity of knowledge. So it's not only, let me say, intellectual autonomy, it's even more than that. You should be some, somehow, um, let me say, this kind of meta-subject. Uh, as you can see, I, I quoted Kant. That's a very famous uh, booklet by him from 1798 about Streiter Fakultäten uh, in order to, to, to get rid of old bachelor master programs, so to get actually rid of professional schools and to let science and reasoning, philosophical reasoning, intrude in, in all areas of the university. And as a consequence... The universities abandoned bachelor's and master programs and just came up with PhD programs. The bachelor programs actually were put into the high schools. That's the reason why the German high school lasted for so long. The master programs were thought as being superfluous because they're only prescriptions. And that's the reason why you need PhD programs. And that's the kind of research-based education what Humboldt had, had in, in, in mind. But what is interesting with respect to the French model and the German model is that the French model is very much, let me say, utilitarian. So it's what you would call accountability to, to the state, not to the democracy, not to the civil society. German model has intellectual autonomy in order to use these phrases. 
but both were actually run by the state. So, of course, that was the Prussian state and the French state with uh, micromanagement within the university. Then, of course, there was nationalization, which I don't want to go into that, but there is the idea of a national university. You still see it when you come to some countries. You're surprised to see that's a national university. For me, it was always a contradictio in adiecto. But, uh, well, that is. And the main point was that they cultivated the native language. But it is important to see that the role models of the 19th century was, on one hand, the French model, leading to institutes of technology. I could now refer to the ETH Zürich. I could refer to the Technischen Universitäten in Germany. Uh, perhaps I am not so sure about Imperial College, whether they have that kind of tradition. And on the other hand, you have the German Humboldtian model, which was a role model. If you go to Japan, you will see that University of Kyoto, Tokyo, were all modeled according to the Humboldt idea. And so they were the role models of the 18th century. Now, what I think is, is what is quite interesting to see that the success of the American system, I'm not so sure whether I can talk here in London about the success of the US system, but it, it somehow copes with the massification of higher education and the trans intensification of research in some institutions. And I have given you here some hints on that, uh, that the US system on the one hand, had this Scottish medieval university model, but then on top of that, they put PhD programs. The first one was Johns Hopkins University. Of course, the University of Chicago and others following. And the second one, they had this foundation of institutes of technologies too. And the interesting point is, is, is they just got a hybrid system of that. Uh, which somehow seems to better cope with high participation rates because you get a diversified system of higher education. Here, uh, let me say, with bachelor programs, master programs, PhD programs, and so on. And you have also the possibility of intensification of research. Now, what intensification of research means can be discussed for a long time. I remember I was asking someone what he would mean under that, and he would basically say, you need 1,000 good researchers and a budget of at least 1,000 billion US dollar. Then you can go into that direction. And the question is, of course, whether we have that in Europe. Now, what is interesting is, is when Bologna and uh, the European research area came about, that you had difficult pressures within the national system. Now, it was very clear in Germany that the PhD study architecture wouldn't work anymore. They introduced diploma studies already in the 20th century, uh, but uh, only reluctantly because it would somehow contradict university values. The university value was still going for PhD studies. And, and you would also do it in all universities, so in all 100 or 150 universities you have in Germany. But what you needed is a new study architecture, and you needed a differentiation of the system. And of course the Germans feared very much that they would lose 
let me say, um, um, in, in a globalized higher education and research world, they would lose their competitive position. That's one of the reasons why uh, they signed the Sorbonne Declaration and somehow supported that, because they wanted to somehow come up with a new study architecture. There were pressures in France very much alike because they saw that they need to have more universities, uh, uh, more research in the universities in Grand École. They needed to upgrade the universities, overcoming their fragmentation. The problem in France still is, is that most of the research is done in the Centre National de Recherche Scientifique or in the Institut Pasteur and, and other institutions. So there was the fear. And my main theme would be Europe moves if France and Germany agrees on some issues. Of course, the British are very important, perhaps, to somehow fool the process. But in, in that respect, it was very important. Now, of course, it was very clear with the mass higher education, you needed to transfer decision-making powers uh, from um, national ministries to autonomous university. That challenged very much the idea of state micromanagement, which you had in, in the universities, uh, and so on. But, of course, there's still the issue now lingering in Germany and, and France that perhaps the kind of university system which was appropriate as long as we had state micromanagement would not be appropriate, let me say, if we have more autonomous, strategically thinking universities. So we have this discussion of merging universities. The question is of whether, what kind of differentiation of profiles and missions and so on. And these are difficult issues because, of course, you can't have that uh, all German universities are Harvard-like, as many of them would like to be. Uh, and, and that's the question of how, how, how to do it. But these reform pressures were very important that something like a European uh, uh, system emerges. Now, I don't want to go through, through the various, because you are very familiar with uh, all these issues, but just let me just say that Erasmus+, Plus, which is in the process of being negotiated today, uh, uh, would like to see four million students with horizontal mobility between 2014 and 2020. That means between 400 and 500,000 students uh, per year would be um, uh, horizontally mobile among European countries and also to, um, to countries outside of, of Europe. I don't want to get to the common study architecture. Um, that's, again, let me say, the medieval, and we have this European credit transfer system. That was actually a discussion before uh, the lunch break. Um, I think that works quite well. Now, what we also have, and that was very important, actually, not in so much in the Sorbonne Declaration and not so much in the June 99 Bologna Declaration, uh, it was in the interest of universities that we worked on, um, on quality assurance systems. And uh, actually, we were quite successful. So 2005 Bergen, uh, the standard and guidelines, and then the European Quality Assurance Register. So just to give you an, an example, the University of Vienna now asked the Swiss quality assurance agencies uh, to get 
uh, let me say, a review of the quality system, institutional quality system of the university. So it does not need to be anymore an Austrian one. Of course, the employability of graduates. The interesting point now for the next Erasmus Plus would be if you get, uh, let me say, subsidies from Brussels for vertical mobility, loan guarantee scheme for masters, uh, actually uh, Erasmus Plus uh, provides, I mean, in, in the plans right now, about 500 million for seven years in order to to, um, um, to, 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 to support vertical mobility. Very often, let me say, ministers, national ministers, are very much interested in horizontal mobility, but not vertical mobility. As a Polish minister told me, why should we support an action in Brussels uh, which only leads to the fact that our best uh, students leave the country because they take them the degrees in other countries. With horizontal mobility, they would like to come back. But I think it's important that we enter this vertical mobility. European research area, I think I don't need to go through that. What, what is important is already that transnational cooperation and competition has increased. Uh, uh, and what is also important is, is the opening the labor market for researchers. Um, if you see, for example, if, if you go to countries like Switzerland and so on, and look uh, who are the ESC grantees of the, uh, of the Ecole Polytechnique uh, Fédérale de Lausanne, you will see most of them are not Swiss citizens. So there is already a lot of mobility going on, and, and that is, 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 is what is important. So in, in the mid uh, uh, in, in 2005 to 2007, when I was chairing the European University Association, I wanted to somehow go for a modernization agenda for universities, somehow obliging member states to ensure real autonomy and accountability for universities, and at least 2% of GDP spending uh, GDP devoted to a modernized education sector. But what is interesting is, is that actually the national, the member states rejected that. They didn't want it. So that was, so we somehow saw a limit of, let me say, federalism in, in, in Europe. And so let me just conclude by coming up with my vision of, of, of Europe. I think on the one hand, and here you see Arab, this uh, works which I co-authored. Uh, we need to realize a, a new renaissance, which basically means we need EU-wide patent and so on, open innovation chart and the management of intellectual properties and so on. So we need common rules in Europe. Uh, we need also more pre-commercial procurement because the strength of the United States is, is, is that it spends 50 billion US dollar on pre-commercial procurement, whereas in Europe it's only uh, two, three, four uh, billion uh, we spend on that. We need more to focus on, on, on high-impact research topics. We are now uh, getting that with Horizon 2020. And what is also important is, is in order somehow to help universities in Eastern Europe, in Southern Europe, and so on, we need actually a certain earmarking of structural funds and the common agricultural policy 
money for uh, R&D projects, and this goes for small, smart specialization. So what we need is, is, we need, let me say, a shrewd European research policy. Uh, what the U.S. demonstrates is, is that the transfer of responsibilities for universities from the member states to the federal level is actually not needed. So to a certain extent, I, and that's my conviction, is universities should remain loyal to their national tra traditions. They are so strong. But what it is important is, is that they act strategically in a European context and adopt differentiated profiles and missions. So in order to get that, it is sufficient to establish a high degree of interstate mobility for staff and students. So I would say horizontal and vertical mobility of students. And we need these opening the labor market for researchers. So basically, this is what the United States does. Is it has a mobility of students and staff. And we need that in Europe. We need the increase of the research funding for excellent frontier research at the top. I would say ERC is not sufficient compared to what the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health are doing. Uh, and, uh, but, but it's already on the right track. And we need to implement a federal EU innovation demand. And then what we need is that autonomous universities looking for additional funding and embarking on acting strategically, uh, they somehow move into, let me say, uh, being Europe, European-wide more visible. And uh, of course, we still need national frameworks to ensure certain system differentiation within national borders. Now, what I think is, is and that's my end, reputational competition at the top and among national systems, and the financial necessity for universities to cater to local regional f needs. And they should do so by structural funds uh, and should do so by the means of agricultural policy and so on. And both may do the trick of transforming inefficient universities in isolated systems into a vibrant European university system. Thank you. Our next speaker is Roxanne Stockwell from Pearson's, and she's going to talk about the private sector. Hi, um, so I'm Roxanne. I'm the principal of a very little institution called um, Pearson College, and lots of you here today may not have even heard of it. That's because it's very new, uh, one of the newest, maybe the newest um, uh, higher education institution um, in the UK and it only started uh, a year ago. But we're actually part of Pearson, which most of you will probably have heard of. And uh, Pearson is a global education and publishing company. And we have all sorts of educational activities across uh, over 70 countries uh, around the world. But in HE, uh, where you would have most likely come across us is that uh, we uh, publish more textbooks for students studying degrees at universities all over the world than anybody else does. But there's lots of other stuff that we do as well. Um, so, for example, we own Edexcel, which is the largest awarding body in the UK. Uh, not degree awarding, but all sorts of other <coughs> qualifications. And we own the Financial Times. And we run the driving test, 
And we have all these Pearson View Centres that lots of the MOOCs are now using uh, in order to carry out assessments um, in, you know, invigilated conditions. Um, and we also uh, help run part of the uh, PISA tests. So there's all sorts of educational activity that we are involved in. And Pearson's becoming more and more specialised in education over the last um, decade or more. And um, as part of that, we've now started to uh, look at actually setting up institutions where we have our own students and our own own teachers. So rather than just providing a very small part of the learning experience for other people, we also want to put some of those things together to create learning experiences um, uh, in a Pearson institution as well. So that's really what I'm part of. And we've already got a a university in South Africa and um, an online university in Mexico. And we also own a place called Wall Street Institute, which teaches lots of English uh, to all sorts of different people, particularly in China, but it is actually all over the world. Um, So there is this whole sort of gamut of things that we do, and it's a natural extension of that. Um, What what I'm now doing is a natural extension of that kind of activity uh, in Pearson. So I thought, um, I was trying to think about what I would talk about today because there were like so many things that I would have liked to have shared with you and I would have loved to have a discussion around notions of public and private good and what's public and private and how it's all kind of merging together. Um, And then the other thing I was thinking about was the whole funding side, but I know we've got a separate session on that. So I thought what would be most interesting, given that this particular session is about uh, competing visions of HE, is to share with you um, our thinking behind the emerging vision for HE that we're developing at Pearson College. So this is really, really new. I'm obviously um, here um, as somebody who's part of the private sector, and this is like really, really new even within the private sector. And I know one thing for sure is that five or ten years down the track it's going to look different from whatever it is I outlined to you today. Um, But I thought that the being um, aware of the sort of thinking behind what we're doing might be of interest in talking about uh, the shape of um, the future of higher education in the UK. So, um, first off, I joined Pearson just over two years ago, two and a half years ago, and the idea was that I would set up something called a higher education awards division, and it would um, build its own cohort of students and teachers and develop its own programs, and at some point, when it's ready, apply for degree awarding powers, and at some point beyond that, get university titles. So in other words, I was brought on to... uh, help Pearson build a UK-based university, which is a really, really cool job, and I often say is like the best job in the UKHE, but it's also the hardest, and I'm sure many of you will disagree with both of those points, um, but it's certainly very interesting anyway. Um, and because it's so new, like even at the, right now we're still grappling with questions about what is higher education for, and what kind of experience can we offer our students, and what contribution can we make to higher education as a whole, and, and also society in a wide away. So all of that is is still, it's emerging, as we say. So I came across to Pearson from BPP. I'd been there for 10 years. When I left, I was on the board of directors and I was in charge of uh, teaching and learning and innovation. So at BPP, um, I I saw it grow. um, I saw it get degree awarding powers. um, And then I saw it not long after that be acquired by Apollo. And so I was sort of involved in in all of those different things, which has given me another perspective on um, uh, the private space. So... um, I've obviously got some relevant experience in coming across to Pearson, but actually Pearson's position is completely different to BPP, so its path through all of this it will end up being completely different to BPP as well. But it gives me a couple of different um, contrasting perspectives, um, if you like. And that's all part of the 
the great diversity that I see in the sector. The private sector is really tiny, so I know there's a lot of talk about it, but if you measure it in terms of um, student loans, it's like less than 1%. And if you measure it in terms of people who've managed to get degree awarding powers, there's only about six, of which there's only one that's actually part of a for-profit, or there's now just become another one. But basically, there's not not very many. Um, So it's still really small, but even within that, it's very, very diverse, with generally people being quite specialised in either subject or the type of student that they attract or the methodology that they're using. Um, But I'm sure that will grow and you'll have much more broader-based ones um, as time goes on. Um, So I'm going to be talking about it from this particular perspective. So anyway, arrived two and a half years ago, We've literally just started. Um, first off, um, after obviously having to get to know Pearson a bit and do a business case and all that kind of thing, um, we found a validating partner, which is Royal Holloway, for our first degree in business and enterprise. Um, and we had to set up Pearson College itself as an entity. We had to get our first programs designated for loans. We took our first cohort of students, which was a small pilot cohort, um, last year, September 2012. And we've just taken our second cohort um, this September. Um, and we've announced our second validation uh, partner arrangement, which is with Ashridge, and we'll be um, uh, uh, delivering a a range of business management programs starting next September. Um, So this is literally just at the beginning. We have no graduates. We have one program that's running. Um, So we know that we have a lot to prove and to learn and to develop um, uh, over that time period. Um, But um, in university terms, that's actually moving quite quickly, as I'm sure many of you here today will um, recognise. So uh, we're quite cautiously optimistic um, about the future. Um, So um, before I came to Pearson... I was already starting to mull over the role of industry and higher education. Um, And the more I thought about it, the the more I could see there are all sorts of different reports and so on coming together um, that seemed to point to a need for more industry engagement in higher education. So one of the things that really struck me was some reports I read about uh, students who had had internships or had taken um, sandwich years, and that when they came back to university, I mean, not only were their employment rates higher on graduation, um, but also their academic progress um, was better when they came back. This was sort of saying, okay, so there's some learning, even if it's not structured in classes, there's some kind of learning um, that's actually happening um, while they're actually being employed and working with industry. And then there's been lots of different reports, and I'm just going to mention um, these um, uh, just in kind of broad brush terms, because you will, I'm sure you will have come across these um, over the years, but lots of different reports from industry saying that the graduates either don't have the right knowledge base or that they don't have the right skills, still employing them anyway, but um, uh, you know, having issues with what they're coming out with from university. And then you've got OECD reports that show that The UK um, has a particularly high mismatch between the high level of educational attainment um, of graduates and the actual uh, future needs, if you like, uh, within industry in comparison to other countries. You've got, obviously, the increasing cost to the student with the tuition fees, but also I was interested to read about how many billions of... um billions of pounds, um, something like £50 billion is spent by industry itself on the education and training of employees, of which I gather quite a large sum, about £20 billion is on health and safety, so we'll ignore that. But that still leaves quite a, uh, a large amount of, of, of money that's being invested by um, industry in that. And then you've got things like um, reports, again, these are OECD reports, about how the global talent pool is moving and is expected to move quite considerably between now and 2020, um, so that the 
much larger number as a percentage of people with high qualifications are now going to be in um, emerging um, economies, uh, which is obviously going to potentially change the way and the location that companies use to recruit people. And at the same time, you've got universities saying that industry are complaining about the fact that it doesn't, you know, what's coming out of university doesn't necessarily uh, match the skills and attitudes, etc., that they need. But then they're not necessarily doing very much to help. Um, and then you've got some people in university who are saying that it's not their job anyway to do that, um, uh, you know, to, to create students um, you know, or to create an opportunity where students can actually graduate with those skills. And I've got some sympathy with that point of view because if you're talking about um, trying to have people who are, are ready to move uh, successfully within industry, it seems odd to, to expect that training to happen in a really completely and utterly different environment. And then also there are uh, reports where people are saying that actually that's not the purpose of higher education anyway. It shouldn't be about you know, preparing people um, for their um, careers or that's not really the most important aspect of what it's about. I have much less sympathy with that point of view because although I think there are lots of different functions for higher education and there is lots of scope for different types of institutions to fulfil different functions... Um, you do, it, it, it's certainly the case when you look at um, our student surveys and so on that the dominant reason, or if not then the second dominant reason, uh, why students want to undertake um, higher education is ultimately for career benefit. Um, and also, I think that that is the way that the funding tends to be justified. I don't think that is the only way of justifying it, but that certainly is in the, the discourse, that is the way predominantly it's justified. And I think there is a societal expectation around that as well. So, although I think there are lots of different um, functions that higher education can and does perform, that is a really important one, arguably the most important uh, one. Um, so, when I was sort of doing all this different reading and putting all these different things together, it seemed to me that there was a very big disconnect between um, uh, academia, if you like, and industry. There are lots of exceptions. So there's lots of examples of where you would have um, uh, industry and uh, education institutions working closely together on particular projects or particular programs and so on. Um, But still, there seemed to be this sort of broad um, disconnect between the two, and and even sometimes antagonism, um, I think, between the two of them. And so that meant that when I moved across to Pearson, I, w- I was having all those kinds of uh, thoughts uh, in my head. Um, and in particular, the question about, is higher education actually happening in the right place, given what the main aim is for most people engaging with it? Is it actually occurring in the right type of community? So... I came across to Pearson and looked at it and thought, okay, so we want to um, enter higher education as a, you know, uh, someone delivering, as we call it in Pearson, higher education. Um, And there were obviously some problems. Um, Firstly, we had no direct experience of teaching and learning, so we had lots of experience in contributing all sorts of uh, different aspects of teaching and learning, but not doing the whole teaching and learning together. We had absolutely no reputation or recognition with um, uh, young people who are likely to go to university. So we're known well to companies and to institutions, but not at all to individual students, if you like. Uh, we, we tested that, and it was complete zero. Um, 
We also have no subsidy, um, you know, no uh, links with um, any sort of HEFCI funding, obviously no degree awarding powers, no university title, highly regulated se- uh, sector, formidable barriers to entry, hostility from some of the um, um, sector, I'm sure that's not from anyone here today, um, and also this positional market, which are notoriously difficult markets to enter, where the reputation and position vis-a-vis um, other um, uh, institutions is really more important than the actual features of the te- teaching and learning, which makes it very difficult for a new person to come in um, and compete effectively with that. So these are all kind of like big red flags of things that were difficult, but at the same time, um, and bearing in mind um, the thinking that I'd already been doing around the role of industry in higher education... Um, Pearson itself is a FTSE 100 company, so it's you know, very successful commercially. It's 150 years old, so it has um, quite a long heritage. And it's already much involved with education with lots of different sorts of expertise. We own um, the Financial Times. We're joint owners of um, uh, Penguin and The Economist, largest awarding body in the UK. Um, and so when I was looking at Pearson, and then, then of course there's all this publishing side, um, so... Um, we, because we publish to more universities um, for um, textbooks for their students than anyone else, we've obviously had to work with lots of absolutely top um, uh, experts in their field to help create all those kinds of uh, resources. Um, and so when I was looking at that, I was thinking, well, actually, Pearson does have its own type of academic heritage and actually dates back more than 150 years because through various subsidiaries we have it, it goes back right to the 1700s. Um, um, it's very different to a university one, of course, but there is a type of academic heritage there and there's a very strong commercial heritage as well. So um, Pearson's got those two kinds of things within it. And um, more importantly, uh, Pearson has really excellent links with industry, lots of really good relationships with other um, large companies, but also with with, um, uh, SMEs as well. Um, And if, if coming from Pearson, we want to try and engage with a company, we're quite likely to get, even if they haven't worked with us before, to at least sit down and have a serious conversation um, with us. So the way that I saw that is like Pearson has, um, you know, when people talk about um, universities having um, academic capital and the students that go to them, social capital and and, um, uh, economic capital and so on. It's like this sort of what I've called industrial capital. And and there should be a way that we could take that sort of academic and commercial background and that sort of industrial network and capital and translate that into benefits for students um, in perhaps a different way um, to a traditional university. Um, So this was the kind of um, thinking um, that we were going through and that we are still going through. Um, And that has meant that we have come up with an emerging vision of higher education for us um, that um, is shaping everything that we're doing and is really founded on industry engagement. So bringing industry into the whole higher education sphere. And what's important here is we're not talking about industry designing programs for their own employees, which is also great, and there's some you know, good examples of that happening as well. Um, but it's industry contributing to a, a, a wider higher education community. So it might be that some of those students end up working with that company, but they, but, you know, they, they, they might not. Um, And so it's to help make them part of the business community um, as a whole. Uh, So what our kind of mission is, if you like, is to prepare students for their future professional lives by creating a learning experience in which um, academic and industry input are treated as equally important. And that's really the, the key of what it is that we're trying to do. 
Now, that means that we try and embed industry engagement in everything that we do, from design, delivery, validation, regulation, and so on. And we also want to act as a conduit for industry becoming increasingly involved in higher education um, and making more of a contribution, and also becoming, uh, developing a greater sense of responsibility for higher education, because there isn't really a lot of point complaining about it if you don't try and do something um, where you're contributing to it. Um, so developing that kind of feel that... Um, Uh, that higher education um, is part of what they should be um, helping shape. And at the same time, the academic rigour is really important and all the courses are quality assured in in the the way that you would expect um, at any university. But, of course, you'd expect academic rigour in every UK university, so that's not really you know, the distinctive part, if you like, of what it is that we're trying to um, uh, evolve. So it doesn't go without saying, but it almost goes without saying that it needs to have all the academic rigour behind it as well. So this principle affects everything. So what we've been doing so far in the program that we've got, Business and Enterprise, for example, is that the learning happens um, at our corporate headquarters, um, as well as in more traditional academic environments, and as well as in the quarters of some of the um, industry partners that we work with. So there's a whole atmosphere, if you like, that the students are participating in. We have internships and mentorships woven into the program um, as well for the students. They have to you know, have passed and achieved certain levels in order to be able to go and participate in some of these things, but it's woven into um, the actual um, learning experience. In terms of the um, entry requirements, um, we're not focused on the three subjects and the, and the three A-levels, although um, that is uh, one way that people can come onto the program. But the way that most people um, do is to participate in what we call an assessment day. Um, and that's designed deliberately reminiscent of the way um, a, a number of companies now um, recruit graduates. Um, so there's a whole lot of... Um, you know, tests and different things that they have to do. It's not exactly the same as that because obviously we're talking about people who haven't been through university yet, um, but they do um, tests on cognitive skills and written skills. They have an interview, which is like, like a job interview sort of, um, and so on. So we're, we're, what we're trying to look for is potential across two of different four categories that we're looking at um, to bring them onto the program and hopefully get quite a, a, uh, a diverse um, group um, as a result of that. And we also have, um, in the way we design programs, so even in the initial validation, we make sure that we have industry leads sitting alongside academic leads and treated as equally as possible. So on business and enterprise, we had BT and Cisco as our industry leads, for example. We had Professor Nigel Slack, who's a, um, a world-leading expert on operations management, as the academic lead on that particular program. And the same principle follows through to all the individual modules. So for each module, we have an academic lead um, who... Um, governs the the lectures and the seminars, if you like, and we have an industry lead who contributes a lot to the workshops. So seminars and workshops are basically 50-50 in terms of um, uh, the student time. And even um, uh, when we're looking at um, ultimately um, expanding out into other locations and having a distributed model, we envisage them interacting in the way the business interacts. So rather than, oh, is it online or is it, is it face-to-face, um, it, it's, it's um, a, a mixture in the way that we have to um, uh, work within a, a business like Pearson and like many other companies. It's a whole mixture of asynchronous and synchronous and email and phone calls and phone calls suddenly change to meetings 
meetings and all sorts of different things, but, but getting some experience of being able to, to communicate and work together in that kind of environment. So in short, what we're trying to establish is, is what um, I would call an immersive or really a semi-immersive model. So they have a foundation of traditional academic learning with familiar experiences of seminars and lectures, but at the same time they're becoming part of a modern business community and they're becoming comfortable with different types of business communities and able to contribute positively to them. So that's what we've done so far. Um, and looking forward, I can see it developing in other ways. Because once you start with that principle of, of industry engagement and trying to make it part of the, the modern business community, it kind of starts to design itself. And so um, we've just appointed a, a vice principal of education and research, and, and it will be her job to help develop what the research community would look like. And I can imagine one that is bringing in industry and students and academics and looking at different kinds of research than would be done traditionally in a university uh, not not um, uh, ref research, um, but other ways that um, uh, people might want to research and publish and contribute back to um, society. And a global cohort as well that is set up in a, a similar way that's combining academic and industry uh, together and helping students to, be, to set up their own businesses and to be working on genuine projects within companies and partnering with other universities that have similar values or have complementary values so that we can bring kind of the industry engagement side and they might be bringing some other specialism um, or research side um, or whatever into whatever the project is. So our vision is for um, a, a university one day that's founded on industry engagement and which encourages industry to take responsibility or at least part responsibility in helping to shape higher education and also the nature of future, uh, of, of future members of the professional community um, and that can be done through mentoring and all sorts of other techniques. And one that prepares students for their professional lives by helping them grow intellectually and develop a knowledge base, as you would expect in any university degree, um, in whatever their chosen discipline is, but also that gives them every opportunity to graduate with a sophisticated understanding of the modern business world and how that knowledge can be used in practice, or, or not used, not, not all the time theories and, and so on are used very effectively. Um, and we also want to be able to offer um, this sort of corporate access and corporate insight to a really wide range of students and to be able to recognise learning that happens in much more complex environments than the traditional university classroom. So this vision raises all sorts of questions about HE, um, which are questions that we have started to answer for ourselves and we'll probably change some of those answers later on um, as, as things develop. But one of those is where should a higher education happen? And it has traditionally happened, not with every um, institution, but in a, uh, a particular academic community at a particular location. And what we're talking about is creating a community that's much more embedded in the real world, if you like, um, and is more complex, I guess, and a bit messier, but is also hopefully preparing them uh, more for their future professional lives. There's also the question of who are the experts, and I'm sure that people in universities will say, well, we are, um, but um, if you look at how learning can improve when people are engaging with industry, there is another whole area of, of expertise um, in HE. Of course, we come down to what is the main purpose um, of higher education. For us, it's about preparing them for future careers, but for other institutions, it, it may be something quite different. And who is responsible for higher education? Again, bringing in industry as at least part of that. And what counts as learning in higher education, um, apart from the traditional classrooms, traditional exams and assignments, um, and so on. And also how students and staff should interact. 
Um, so the model for interaction that we're developing, and we are only developing it because we obviously haven't been able to implement um, all of this yet, is quite different to um, the way that um, students and teachers would tend to interact within higher education at the moment. So our vision for the private sector would be one that allows different types of um, entrants like ourselves to enter to grow and to be able to uh, contribute to higher education as a whole, um, offering um, innovation, different kinds of um, approaches, helping ultimately to expand the sector. And we want to be able to see other private sector people coming into existence who can answer those same questions but in different ways. Thank you. Very much. We've now got about 20 minutes for questions. I'll take two or three together, and it would be very helpful if you could say who you are and where you're from. So, if we start over here, the person in the blue shirt. Hi, I'm Jay So, I'm from the Palestinian community. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my question is for Roxanne. Um, so, obviously, I kind of got from your speech that you guys see the parity between uh, industrial interests and academic interest in higher education. And uh, that would worry a lot of students. Uh, I, I'm interested also in kind of, uh, I say worry students because they probably do not like to be seen as consumers, which I, I think that would kind of foster that approach to you personally. I'm interested as well in, you said you Pierce and what's those of encounter hostility towards this approach to pursue higher education that way. So I was just interested if you could elaborate on that. Okay. Um, hang on, hang on. I'm going to bring two or three people in. Oh, and that's definitely a question to you. But uh, Gareth, you wanted to come in? Yeah. Well, I, I've got a question about everybody, really, but it applies in different ways. Gareth, will you please How, you bothered, how bothered are you, or how interested are you, in the evidence from HEPI reports, among others, that the experience, the learning experience students get in different universities? is very, very different, even for learning apparently the same thing, and that in general, I'm speaking from memory here, but in general, the amount of learning opportunities that our students get is less than in many European countries. Thank you. Um, Anne? Roxanne, would you like to start on that first question and I'll bring the others in on the other two um, comment for another round of Okay, so the first question is around um, equality or parity of industry engagement and academic um, input. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is that um, uh, the 
the, the traditional academic rigour, what you would expect students to be able to do with essays, exams, reading, analysis and so on, um, is absolutely part of what we need to offer. Um, but there is another layer of complexity and analysis that can be added onto that by engaging with industry. So, for example, if you're, if you're working on um, uh, some kind of model around um, you know, marketing strategy or something like that, I'm just using business examples um, at the moment, um, and then you're able to um, have a discussion with people who lead that within a, a, a company of interest, for example, L'Oreal, somewhere like that, then you're able to actually work on how to apply that kind of learning to something that is really happening within a particular company. And for a lot of students, that is um, very um, motivational. It can help a lot of the learning come to life much more. So a lot of the industry engagement is it is an intellectual exercise as well. Um, I used to teach um, uh, law um, to postgraduates and uh, preparing them to become solicitors or barristers. And these were students who come from top universities, are really bright, really, really capable. Um, but there was, it was very, very difficult for them um, intellectually to make the jump between what they had learned around um, some of the, I'll call them theoretical principles, and actually converting that into an advice um, uh, or whatever it was that they had that they had to do. So there's that whole. Um, it's an addition. It's not taking away from what students um, already have, um, but an additional level of expertise and um, perspective um, that I think a lot of students, I mean, not, not necessarily all students, students have different reasons for um, doing HE um, anyway, um, would find um, interesting and challenging and hopefully is going to help them um, ultimately post-graduation. Thank you. George. Well, uh, just two, two brief remarks. The first one about learning experiences uh, so different in institutions. Um, I was somehow surprised during the last 10 or 15 years in the so-called tuning uh, experiment that actually most of the curricula, let's say in chemistry, economics, and so on, um, are quite more common than you would think. So I have the feeling that, let me say, if, if you look at the various subjects, um, you have more in common Europe as you perhaps would think, because uh, the ways to, to, to get to studies of chemistry in France is different than you would do it in, in Germany or perhaps in the United Kingdom. But, but still, you have to say, the idea of what students should know in chemistry or what students should know in economics is, is widely shared. So I, I have the feeling that perhaps ultimately there's more similarity, although perhaps the learning experience might be different. And, and the second point is, is about competing or interacting visions. Uh, what, what I tried to convey is, is that um, if, if you go to Germany and, to, uh, and you're engaged in evaluation of, let me say, top universities, I'm just engaged now in two, in the Humboldt University of Berlin and then the University of Bielefeld, for example, uh, that, then you would, will easily see that you, you can't turn them into, let me say, an American institution. It's, it's not possible. But it gives strength to them to have something like uh, Erziehung durch Bildung, uh, uh, Erziehung durch Wissenschaft, and, and things like that. So my basic feeling was is you should have competitive pressures 
at the European level. So, for example, the ERC grants already put some pressures, but there should be more pressures to that. So you should increase this pressure, but leave the system flexible and open. And, and I wouldn't, wouldn't advocate to have, let me say, just a standard model. The only thing we tried very much at the European University Association is to get agreement on minimum quality assurance. So uh, that was the discussion when we had in Bergen and in other locations that, of course, uh, institutions would be different when it comes fit for purpose, but they all should be fit off purpose. And, and so you need to have some kind of a, a minimum quality, I mean, quality standards, which all should. So leave it open, increase the competitive pressures, uh, and only make sure that there is, let me say, fit off purpose. And that's it. Stefan. Well, on the first question about the learning opportunities, it, it seems to me this is one of those areas, and there are quite a few when talking about universities, where it's difficult to know quite how to um, identify the character and interpret the use of the kinds of statistical evidence we can get. That's to say, I think we'd be foolish to disregard such evidence. It tells us certain things. But we might also be foolish to think it's the whole picture. And I think where, in particular, what we broadly class as learning or education is concerned, it is very difficult to translate into those more kind of tick-box answers what it is we really hope that that process is bringing about. Now, it doesn't mean that there are no other ways to do it. Uh, I do think that there are forms of reporting on student learning that actually are quite often more informative than, say, number of hours of contact or um, those kinds of statistics. One, which was mentioned just this morning, but I think has been a little underrated sometimes about uh, a strength of higher education in this country, is an external examiner system and an external examiner's report. I must say I learn a lot more from our external examiner's reports than from any of the questionnaires that we see filled in by students or by colleagues, partly because they are analytical and discursive and fairly experienced about what kind of teaching and how much of it is effective in what kinds of ways. More wouldn't necessarily be more effective just in terms of hours. So I don't think there's a single answer to that, but I'm, while I think we have to uh, attend to those variations, I don't draw any conclusion from it that we should in any way try and enforce uniformity or, or even that there has to be uniformity between different subjects, which may actually have quite different kinds of relation to information intake as opposed to reflection and analysis and so on. Um, I don't think I have anything very much to add to the question further back there about um, cooperation, which <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of word like mom and apple pie in America. I mean, we all have to be in favor of it in some way or other. Uh, I think I would just say that um, I, I notice among some younger academics these days an unease about this question because they're a little afraid in the British context that they may in some sense be giving other institutions or rival groups of researchers or whatever some advantage. A little like, as it were, a you know, company uh, doing research in its field would be afraid it would give a competitive advantage to a rival company. Uh, this is surely not an attitude we want to encourage, and the inherently collaborative nature of scholarship, I think, the further you go into it, 
is something that has to be reflected in various ways, in not just the institutional framework, including of the kind that George was talking about, but actually in the ethos of collaboration. I mean, scholars can be rivals because they have, let's say, a little bit more than the usual share of human vanity, and uh, certain kinds of reputational things rest on this. But in all kinds of ways, actually, they're not competitors, or at least not as the, the current idiom about that tries to make them. And I think that can have a corrosive effect on the kind of human uh, basis of the cooperation that I think you rightly call for. Thank you. Another round. Here in the middle. In the time of Deary, I was actually responsible for a study into Deary which looked at um, attitudes and aspirations of university staff. And I wanted to raise the question here about what exactly is expected of um, faculty, what kind of teachers are is one looking for. We heard talks about constraints on staff, um, uh, which have um, mentioned, uh, Simon Underwood mentioned some also before lunch, and there are also constraints such as a requirement to do research where research is not formally done, which is something which happens in some of the new universities and it's been happening in the university in Australia and Jerusalem. There are constraints which um, Winkler mentioned about becoming um, needs to become more of the European or the needs to go looking for something which is also high impact um, innovation. So there's a pressure on people to do something. And there's also Can you bring your question to a close because there are a lot of other people waiting? Also mentioned which is how to deal with business. And that seems to again you're quite a very different kind of person than the person who um, is wanting to do the loops of something very different from perhaps the nature of um, Sorry, I'm going to stop you. I mean, I, I, we can't have speeches from the floor because there are lots of people waiting and we're for a time constraint. Person here in the middle. Thank you. Richard Yellen from OECD. I think my question has sort of been approached, but I want to push it again into the, the question of quality of teaching and quality of output and how far, if at all, it is necessary, if it's possible, to go to making international comparisons of quality of teaching. I was involved in some of this work at OECD, and uh, we're still thinking about where it might go. Or do students and potential students just have to trust that every, every bachelor degree is worth every other bachelor degree? And if I might throw in one more comment, yes, since you're there, Chair, it's a question for you. Yeah. It's, it's an irony. Maybe could you comment on the irony that one of the signatories of the Sorbonne Declaration... Um, this comes from the country which is probably at least as far as higher education, education is concerned has been least affected by the whole Bologna process that would be my comment <laughs> Tim yeah. um, t- uh, Tim O'Shea University of Edinburgh the, I, I thought Stefan talked very nicely about some of the desirable universal characteristics of universities and I thought Georg Uh, gave us a very nice account of of some of the national characteristics and how they've evolved. And I guess I'm sort of... My question really comes from St. Paul and the the higher gifts. Um, It seems to me that the reason universities have endured and why we value them is they help us address issues like uh, medical challenges, environmental challenges, cultural understanding to promote world peace. 
Uh, and it seems to me the reason we want students to be educated there is because we want students to become uh, more morally developed, have a better understanding of the world, be, uh, for it to be possible to them to be more effective global citizens. So, so my question is, is you know, the question St. Paul would put to you, which is what are we going to do? How do we ensure that universities help us meet these higher goals? Well, I want to start at this end this time. Thanks. <laughs> I've got quite a few unanswerable questions there, yeah. Um, well, just to go back then to the beginning with the question of expectations of university staff. I mean, lots could be said about this. Let me just pick up one thread of it, which I think hasn't been touched on up till now. Uh, we talk a lot about, and I'm uh, as, as likely to do this as anybody, we talk a lot about the pressures from outside universities on people. But I think something that's a little under-examined is the shape which professionalism has taken, especially in the last generation within universities, and the kinds of career structure and kind of reward that that involves, and the kind of focus on research, which, of course, prompted by a lot of other measures, this has encouraged. Um, I'm thinking here not so much of what might be thought to be the consequence in terms of uh, a shift of attention away from teaching, insofar as that may have happened, I'm thinking rather more of the shift away from that sense of participation in a common enterprise in a department or university and a willingness to take one's share in helping to run it. Um, That is not something largely rewarded in an ordinary academic career now. That's become, as we all know, more and more uh, an independent career route towards uh, some other kind of senior administration. And I think that has had... um, indirect and often unnoticed consequences for the sense of responsibility for teaching, actually. That is to say, we atomize the relation of the individual teacher to the department and to the curriculum much more than we need to do, and we diminish their sense of that being something which we might all have a hand in, a responsibility for, uh, might help run, might help run higher up the university at some stage, and then might return to teaching in the front line and so on. Um, And one of the things I suspect that therefore we have to consider much more is the rewards for the pattern of publication that is at work, Uh, not, of course, just in Britain alone. Britain is uh, very much influenced by the American tenure system in this and its publication demands, but that it's not something that academics can simply say is someone else's problem. Uh, I do think those aspects of that are our problem, uh, first of all. Um, I don't think I can say very much about, the, partly because there are others here, it would be better to speak about this, about the whole question of the international comparisons of quality. Um, it, it's certainly true, and Gail will say something about this, I'm sure. I mean, it is certainly true that students who are mobile across different national educational systems get from it benefits which are not always the same as those who are native to those systems get. And that means it's really quite difficult sometimes to use their testimony as some kind of evidence of comparative quality. Um, In other words, there are uh, particular benefits to the very fact of exposure to another culture and uh, its expectations and mores, which are not wholly separate from the, as you would now say, the learning experience, but which are not generalizable for native students necessarily. And I think that complicates the question of the evidence that is used in this, especially in league tables. 
Um, I mean, I'm very, very pleased to hear Vice-Chancellor of one of our major universities saying that uh, universities, in part, are there to try and address these very large questions and that we want people to be provoked to think and be reflective about these. Uh, How that aspect of universities is to be nurtured and survive alongside the things that uh, all the speakers really today have mentioned, but also, in particular, I think, when the pressure is so much more in the more immediately utilitarian directions is, as I suppose I made clear really in what I said and what I've said on other occasions, I do think is the big question. Um, uh, But I do think it it helps if those in universities, whether at the top of the administration or in the, uh, well, I can't, I'm not sure I can say teaching in Cambridge is in the trenches exactly, but anyway, the rank and file of us doing the teaching. I think if we continue to talk to each other about these things in this way a little more, rather than um, withdrawing into a kind of uh, sullenly antagonistic relation. Uh, I mean, I was struck by, I like the humour of Simeon's remark this morning, but I don't think that it's in anyone's interest, and I'm sure he doesn't either, for administrators to feel that they are in some sense being besieged or attacked by their academic colleagues or for academic colleagues to feel that uh, there is nothing in common with the task of those who are trying to administer these institutions. So I think I would only say, Tim, that that talking in the kind of language which you use briefly in your question and which we try to use in some of these discussions in relation to the practical issues which universities just have to handle, rather than abandoning that larger language, I think at least keeps open the possibility of you know, those issues getting some recognition. That's all I could say. Do either of you want to add anything well, particular to that, George? Then I'll bring well, one I just would like to make some additional remarks to, to what Stefan said. The first one is um, expectation on staff. Um, Europe has more than 1,000 universities, so PhD granting, 5,000 higher education institutions, and so on. Now, what it is important to see that there is a differentiation of expectations. Uh, if you have a new university in Sweden, very much engaged in transforming the agricultural, uh, let me say, base of that country into modern. Uh, uh, agro-industry and so on, and, and they play an important role, then I have also the expectation on the staff that they engage in that. To, so to a certain extent, you need to have a team, uh, and you shouldn't have just, let me say, individuals playing in the university doing what they like. But what you see is, is what kind of profile you have. And if you are, for example, at at one of the leading research universities, you're supposed to come up with a good research record uh, because that is what, let me say, team forming. And and, and this is what you have to see. The the second remark is with respect to quality, I would say. um, Of course, let me say, in former times when there was only mobility within national borders, it was very easy to come up with a question whether you trust an institution or not because you would know the other institution. Now, within Europe, given again this this large number of, of, of institutions, what you then should do is, on the one hand, require this institution to do external quality reviews, as you already mentioned that, and this is part of, let me see, the Bergen philosophy of 2005, that there must be external reviews 
But of course, ultimately, the receiving institution decides on whether to acknowledge something which has been studied in, 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 at, at other institutions. So what you need is, is you need both. You need, to a certain extent, a system of quality assurance, which is transparent in Europe with external quality reviews. But on the other hand, you still, of course, have the receiving institution which decides whether to acknowledge a certain study or not. Thank you. I'm really sorry. I'm going to apologize to people who haven't managed to get their question in, but we, we really are running out of time. And I want to invite Graham Wise now from the NUS uh, to give us his concluding remarks, focusing on whether there indeed should be a system of higher education. Graham. Yes, thank you very much. Um, I, I, have, I have indeed been allocated uh, 10 minutes to answer the question, should there be a system of higher education? Um, and as a result, I, I've had just a small glimpse into how terrifyingly rigorous it must be to be one of Nick Barr's students. Um, and I'm very grateful for the invitation. Um, some of you will think this is just too hard a task. Uh, on the other hand, some of you will consider that the answer to that question is so obvious that even now you are thinking, well, why is he still speaking? <laughs> and I'd like to begin on tackling it uh, by quoting Professor Manuel Castells, speaking in 2004. He said, the debate on university policy is an ideologically charged debate. There is, on the one hand, the notion that the university has to approach the market model and become just another business. On the other hand, there is a corporatist reaction within the university to defend the ivory tower. But more importantly, the university is the last remaining space of freedom. There is no other space in society, no other, that has not submitted to the power of bureaucracies or government or politics or market forces. Well, that was 10 years ago, and the debate in Britain, uh, at least, has in recent years been even more sharply polarised than it was then. My interest is in the way Professor Castell's there positions state and market, not as opposites to be chosen between, but as common antagonists to the true spirit of the university. And if we step further back, back to Robbins we can see that that was a time when it was possible for people to believe much more readily than they do today about in grand public systems. At that time, the new welfare state and the NHS had been more successful than perhaps even their most ardent supporters had hoped. People actually drew comfort and real, tangible benefit from state bureaucracies, and for a while, those state bureaucracies really worked. And yet, even then, no single system of higher education was envisaged, developed, proposed, or legislated. Not by Lord Robbins, not by Edward Boyle, not by Tony Crossland. Under the latter, there was the development of a much more systematic and government-directed subsector of higher education in the form of the polytechnics. But even that left a lot of control to individual local authorities, and as a system, could hardly be described as grand. Certainly, higher education was nothing like welfare or health policy, which both represented an overarching system approach and were very grand indeed in their conception and scope. So faced with overwhelming social pressure to support higher education expansion, key figures 
all had the humility to say one big system would probably do more harm than good. Can we contrast this with Lord Brown's report? In just 80 or so pages, he effectively said, well, by Jove, we've solved it. It's obvious, isn't it? Just set up a market, chaps. So they did. (laughs) And we know the prescription. Create more powerful incentives, take student choice and reify it, indeed deify it, give them more information, in fact, flood them with a monsoon of information. Level the playing field and bring in new players and do it all as fast as you can. Don't wait for too much reflection or debate. We need a new system and we need it now. We should remember that the Brown Committee worked for less than a year. Between the Brown Report being published and the totemic fees vote, there were just 58 days. These are uncomfortable facts that we would do well to remember because they are the lasting evidence of blind faith and too much haste being put into a one-system approach. Long-term radicalism is a great thing, and we have heard today all about the legacy of Robbins. But you can't take a shortcut to legacy. Short-term radicalism is not authentic progress, and it can lead to big and costly mistakes. So I do think the answer to the question I was posed has to be no. There should not be a system of higher education if by a system we mean a single approach taken without scepticism, without caution and without allowing for contingency. The current experiment with an all-encompassing market-based system has not displaced a lumbering state-planned bureaucracy for higher education in Britain because that never existed. And a good thing too. It never came into being partly because of path dependencies and partly because wiser heads prevailed. But the market experiment is also not doing a lot of good. In many ways it is failing on its own terms, not least the bizarre price function and the intentional levering of distorted competition. So what do we need? One observation I would make is that pragmatism has been given a slightly rough ride during this conference so far, and I want to do a bit of standing up for pragmatism. We are in real need, if I can put it like this, for just a little bit of short-term pragmatism. Instead of whole system revolutions, we need just to work a little bit at solving some of the problems that we've had for a long time, as well as some of the all-new problems that we've created over the last few years. Those problems are not hard to see. They really matter to students in higher education right now. In fact, they are easy to see because they really matter to higher education students right now. Those students are out there in the school now and uh, in other institutions asking things like, why can, I only, why, why can I only apply to five British universities, no colleges and nowhere else in Europe? Why can the government retrospectively change what I'll pay back on my student loan if it needs to? Isn't that a bit unfair? Why do my fees pay for other students' fee waivers? Why was I only set two assignments this term? If I complain, why will it take six months for my complaint to be dealt with? And if my complaint is upheld by the adjudicator... Why does that university not have to abide by that ruling? 
Why do I have to hand my essay in between the hours of 2pm and 4pm on a specific Friday, even though I'm a part-time student and I work a 40-hour week? And why am I still waiting for feedback on that essay four months later? And by the way, those last two examples were me. And if it can happen to the assistant policy director of NUS, well, you know what I mean. (laughs) This morning, the Office for Fair Trading announced a broad-based investigation of higher education. This comes following publications of a significant report on sector regulation published by the Higher Education Commission just last week, and the creation over the last year or so of a large amount of new sector machinery to deal with the regulatory challenge. Some people here will think that is all a great shame, and others will think that in all the circumstances it is long overdue. Sadly, I think it might be both. To sum up, there are real practical challenges to be tackled. Long-term radicalism is fine, and we are living with the results of some truly great radicalism today. But short-term pragmatism is needed now. We would do well to actually ask what is worrying students and how those concerns can be addressed. That may require a new and dynamic form of corporatism, not the ivory tower, but underpinned by free-thinking, operating at numerous levels, and involving students, teachers, managers and governors both to reshape institutional policies and practices, but also to influence change in the sector at large. That would be difficult, make no mistake, and it would take time, plenty of time. But in the end, if done seriously, it might succeed where grand new systems based on state intervention or imposed markets surely will not. Thank you.